There she is. First of all, I'm talking with Baroness Caroline Cox of Queensbury, who is intrepid and has gone into uh, Poland um, before the wall came down. Um, many wonderful and harrowing and courageous things. I'm proud to know you. And uh, one of the places that you have gone for decades now has been to Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh. So would you just give us the, the short version of your involvement with Nagorno-Karabakh as background to our conversation about what's happening now? Well, thank you very much for letting me share the pain and the passion of the involvement with the Armenians and especially in Nagorno-Karabakh. I must admit the first time I went, I'd never heard of it but I was invited to help host a human rights conference in Moscow in memory of Yelen Bora Sakharov's famous deceased husband, oh. Andrei Sakharov. And while I was there, people spoke about the horrors of what was happening in this place I'd never heard of. I reported back the full session, was asked to lead an international delegation down to the region. And what I saw convinced me that it was a situation of great, great concern. Azerbaijan was beginning its ethnic cleansing of the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, I'm talking about 1990. And then the full war exploded. And I was in Nagorno-Karabakh at the height of that war when Azerbaijan was trying to drive out all the Armenians. I was in the capital city called Stepanakert and there were 400 Grad missiles a day pounding down on that little city, fired by Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan used low-flying aerial bombardment with huge 500 kilogram bombs with parachutes. So they wouldn't implode in the ground, but they'd explode on impact and destroy a huge amount around them. But with enormous courage, great sacrifice and many miracles, uh, the Armenians managed to hang in there and a ceasefire was signed eventually in 1994. Since then, the Armenians have rebuilt. They made Bomdats to Panikert into a beautiful little city, centers of culture, music, schools, and so on. And our wonderful hero of the peace, Vardan Talivosian, yes. uh, has turned a bombed out old uh, school into an internationally recognized center of care for people with disabilities. And that was path-breaking because the Soviet Union had no care for people with disabilities. They were marginalized, they were segregated, and they had no treatment. And when, in heart, we always like to ask our local partners, what's your priority? We don't tell them, we ask them. And the leaders of the government in Harabakh said, please help for people with disabilities. So it was flourishing as a little land, historically Armenian from time immemorial, some of the oldest Christian churches in the world, going back to the fourth century. And it was de developing with good democracy, good human rights. Uh, it was a very good little land until suddenly, just a little while ago, Azerbaijan with Turkey's help began another massive war and another attempt at ethnic cleansing, which has had devastating effects. What, that began in September, correct? Correct, yes. Azerbaijan has always claimed that Nagorno-Karabakh is part of Azerbaijan. In the Soviet days, when Stalin used to use his salami tactics, divide and rule, he would cut off bits of countries and put them in alien context. And he cut off uh, this little region of ancient Armenia and stuck it in Azerbaijan in what they called an oblast. Now, in the Soviet system, if you were 
felt badly treated or you really wanted self-determination, if you had a massive electoral vote in favor of self-determination, you were granted it. So you could get your autonomy, you could get your freedom. But the vote that was taken in Nagorno-Karabakh was taken as the Soviet Union was imploding. And so it never really had the international recognition. And Azerbaijan has overridden that and argued with its propaganda that it doesn't stand, it's not valid. And therefore Azerbaijan claims it is part of Azerbaijan and this war was an attempt, inverted commas, to reclaim it. But it's historically Armenian. It's been ruled since the end of the last war in 1994 by Armenians with a genuine democracy Yes. And it is historically Armenian. So what was the pretext to start firing now? Well, Azerbaijan is claiming it's reclaiming its own land, but it's been doing so with Turkish help, with a lot of military resources from Turkey and um, a lot of financial uh, support. Uh, Azerbaijan is very wealthy because of its oil. And I'm sorry to say Israel supplied a lot of the drones for uh, Azerbaijan. And Azerbaijan has been using uh, drones, uh, both to identify locations and the kind of suicide drones that will dive down and kill you. And they've been using against civilian targets. They've also been breaking international law by targeting uh, civilian places like the maternity hospital in Stepanakert. I've visited the ruins of it. Uh, the electricity power station, Stepanakert, leaving people in the basements and cellars without light or heat. They have been targeting villages and they've been using cluster bombs, which is also against international law. So two of their weapons they've used illegally by international law are cluster bombs and what are called smirch weapons. And there's been very, very serious violations of international law by Azerbaijan, helped by Turkey. And as you already mentioned, Turkey uh, recruited approximately, probably at least 4,000 mercenaries from Syria and transported those into Azerbaijan to help fight. And we were told that the Syrians were told that for every Armenian whom they beheaded, they would get a reward. Dear God, um, there's a re- Russia got involved, the United Nations got involved, and then Russia got involved again. And, I, and there's a ceasefire in force now, as I understand it. Uh, can you give us this and give us the status? And also, um, I know you were recently there and have published a report and have, have also proclaimed it in the House of Lords. Um, so tell us a, a, a bit about your visit and, and then also about the exact status of exactly what's going on right now. There were three ceasefires before, which were immediately broken by Azerbaijan. Then there was another ceasefire that was brokered just while we were in Armenia. And that sort of seemed to hold for a little while. And that made it possible for us to visit and to reach to Panakert and to meet the people and hear their tragic stories and see the results of the bombings, which we have the evidence of civilian targets, the electric power station and so on, which are, which are war crimes, the maternity hospital. When that was bombed, deliveries were still taking place oh. in the basement. It was still operational, in inverted commas, but now it's been destroyed. And the road from Stepanakert in Nagorno-Karabakh to Yerevan in Armenia normally takes about four and a half hours. It took us 15 hours. The road was completely jammed with people fleeing with such possessions as they could take, with such an- livestock as they could take, you know, sheep or cows, 
Um, and very sadly, many of them were burning their homes because they didn't want them to be left to be desecrated by Azeris. And so we saw people weeping as they set fire to their homes and set fire to the things they could not take with them. So it really was ethnic cleansing. Um, that was uh, when we left. But since then, I understand from reliable reports, the situation has deteriorated badly. Baroness Cox, when did you leave? We were there within about the last four weeks, so recent. And then since then, Azerbaijan, they're creeping forward in the Hedrut area, if you see a map, which is down to the south. And very recently, there have been reports coming in of civilians whom they have captured in those areas and beheaded. When they captured Armenian soldiers and they were prisoners of war, they would mutilate them horrifically torture them and behead them or kill them. And they'd film that with the soldiers' own phones. And then they'd send the videos back to their families so their families would see on their son's or husband's or father's phone what had happened to their loved one. And it, it was just terrible. I remember talking to a lady who was a refugee in Armenia and she'd been looked after in a church. And she just said, I dare not look at my phone. My husband's been missing. And I'm just terrified what oh. I see on that phone of what may have happened to him. So, I mean, it is brutal, brutal atrocities, war crimes, and they must be called to account. They must not be allowed to get away with impunity. And that's carrying on, I understand now, with the recent report of two civilians uh, brutally beheaded, not chopped off, but sawn off, <clears throat> and the videos available. And so I'm afraid all is not well. I, I, I've, I've read that there are 100,000 Nagorno-Karabakh refugees in Armenia, yep. and that there are only 30,000 um, Nagorno-Karabakh citizens still left in Nagorno-Karabakh because they fled. Is that, is that an accurate account? Certainly. Um, of the issues you raise, I would feel that those statistics are probably correct. You obviously don't have accurate statistics over here in Britain, but right. it figures with what we actually witnessed when we were there. So I can believe those statistics. And as I say, we just saw thousands fleeing with such possessions as they could take from Nagorno-Karabakh into Armenia when we were there. And since then, I think more have been fleeing, especially if Azerbaijan is continuing to attack civilians who stay in the parts of Azerbaijan where they should be protected by the Russian uh, peace army. Um, so I can't challenge the statistics, but they ring uncomfortably approximately true. As far as Shushi is concerned, which you asked me about, Shushi is a city on a high ridge above the capital city, Stepanakert. It's a little bit like the Golan Heights. And uh, Azerbaijan always says it's Azerbaijani, it's always been as Azerbaijani, and it was an Azerbaijani center of everything. Well, I'm sorry, that's not the fact. It was a center of Armenian culture until the 1920s. And it was well known. It was a place where a lot of the Armenian cultural magazines were produced and so on. And then in the 1920s, Ottoman Turkey uh, killed about 20,000 Armenians, cut the archbishop's head off and stuck it on a pole, drove the Armenians out. And since then, truly, it has been an Azerbaijan majority city, obviously. In the last war in the early 1990s, being on that height above Stepanakert, uh, from there, Azerbaijan used to fire 400 grad missiles a day down onto the capital city Stepanakert. So the Armenians in a high risk operation, it's always difficult to do a military offensive uphill when the top is held by the enemy. 
the Armenians did manage to retake Shushi. They left two humanitarian corridors open. And uh, as they advanced, the uh, Azerbaijan army retreated down those corridors and therefore Armenia uh, regained control of Shushi. The cathedral, which had been damaged in the previous war, was restored and it was a, a beautiful, holy place. And then in this war, um, it got attacked again. And that is actually a war crime, deliberately to target a holy place of worship. It was attacked twice. So I can't say that the first one was an error of judgment or you know, inaccurate firing. It was attacked twice. And Shushi is now controlled by Azerbaijan. And of course, you know, that is heartbreaking for the Armenians and is very vulnerable because it is still back like the Golan Heights directly above Stepanakert and leaves Stepanakert very vulnerable. Well, what about Stepanakert itself? What is the status of that? That, that is the capital of, exactly. the, of the Armenian Nagorno-Karabakh. Well, it's immensely vulnerable. They built a beautiful new cathedral there, which was consecrated just two or three years ago. And um, that was used during the war. Uh, the basement there was used for shelter the people sheltering from the bombardment by Azerbaijan, miraculously, that survived. Um, oh. Rather like in the previous war, the wonderful monastery you might remember at Ganzazar yes. on the mountaintop, yes. that was miraculously, miraculously protected. I mean, yes. that Azerbaijan is determined to, to destroy the holy places. But the yes. only bomb yes. which got through that divine protection never exploded. So that was miraculously preserved. And... So far, the cathedral, new cathedral in Stepanakert has been preserved. Long may that last. There were a commitment of war crimes with the deliberate targeting of civilian targets, as I mentioned earlier. The maternity hospital got photographs of that absolutely destroyed. The music school, art school, um, the uh, lecturer's depart station, which provides you know, essential electricity for people with light and heat. And they were in the basements and cellars with no light or heat. Um, these are actually war crimes, deliberately to target civilian targets. And there was a great deal of that, not only in Stepanakert, but in towns and villages elsewhere. So Azerbaijan, helped by Turkey, has actually committed a lot of war crimes and must, must, must be called to account. It cannot be allowed to get away with impunity, including, obviously, the brutal, horrendous treatment of prisoners of war. One of the wonderful um, artistic creations of the Armenian people is the Hatskar, which oh, is yeah. their gravestone. And they go back more than a thousand years. The way this uh, professor from Tufts uh, wrote about it, it was to say that the Hatskars really are a, a visual, but also an inscription filled um, history of the Armenian people in, the, in that area. And by destroying them, you're destroying um, a, well, they're a piece of their history and also the artifacts that tell the story. I read something like thousands of Hatchkars have been destroyed in this latest conflict. So I, I just, I wondered if you would like to say anything about that. I very much like to, because it matters so much to the Armenian people. Hatchkar, they're, they're cross stones and they are exquisitely done. I'll send some photographs, but they are, Absolutely exquisite. They're not just gravestones. They're places as a sort of focus for worship. And they may be gravestones, but they're in cathedrals and churches. And even you see them you know, in places regarded as holy land. When we visited Daddy Bank, 
which is another very ancient monastery. It's a thousand years old. And we met Father Johannes there. They have hatch cars there that are 800 years old. And there's no hatch car the same as another. Each one is unique and individual and exquisite. I mean, the detailed carving of the stone, you can't imagine it. And I have a photograph of Father Johannes as he was sort of caressing one, just anguish that it's going to be destroyed by Azerbaijan. Because there's another part of ancient Armenia called Nikitshivam. Yes. And that was given by Stalin to uh, Azerbaijan, well, linked with Turkey. And that had some of the most ancient historic sites, you know, probably in the world. And they had masses of hatch cars. They had a wonderful cathedral there, which was known by UNESCO as a, a place of sort of sacred significance. And when Azerbaijan uh, occupied Nakhichevan, they destroyed every holy place. Uh, they destroyed the hatch cars and even the cathedral, uh, which was internationally recognized. And I think they built a kind of shooting site over the cathedral where the cathedral was. So if they'd done that in the Kitchevan with hundreds of holy places and the holy crosses, the hatch cars destroyed, there's a real fear they will do the same in Nagorno-Karabakh. In the previous war, fortunately, the holy cathedral at Dadivank was not destroyed. It was just used as a place for grazing animals and for you know, sort of desecration, but it still stood. Um, but what will happen this time round, which is much, much more formidable and much more dangerous, uh, we are very concerned about. Well, Caroline, what is the hope? Is there any, I mean, you have also, I, I looked at your report that you wrote when you came back that Nagorno-Karabakh has legitimate claim to be declared uh, an independent principality, um, an independent country, if you will. Um, and, um, you know, the players here are Russia and, uh, and Turkey, and to what extent the United Nations has anything to say. I did read that France, in the midst of all this, France recognized Nagorno-Karabakh as an independent country. Um, and the French have a long relationship with Armenians. Well, in terms of de facto, I believe Nagorno-Karabakh has exactly the same right to self-determination as East Timor, or Timor-Leste, as it's now called, as Eritrea, as Kosovo, because they were all granted self-determination on the basis of attempted ethnic cleansing, genocide, cultural killing, etc. These are the grounds for the right to request and to be uh, regarded as eligible for self-determination. And certainly Nagorno-Karabakh is going through that absolutely right now. So it has a very strong case for it. I'm delighted France has recognized it. Uh, a lot of the international community needs to recognize it because there will be a huge uh, swathe of countries who will not want to recognize it, like Turkey, like Azerbaijan, uh, like their allies. So it's going to be a political battle if Nagorno-Karabakh survives that long. Because the worrying thing is at the feasts and celebrations and victory parades they had in Baku, uh, the president of Turkey, President Erdogan, uh, was seen alongside President Aliyev of Azerbaijan, mm -hmm. celebrating Azerbaijan's success and even hinting at the possibility that Armenia might come next. And the president of uh, Azerbaijan, President Aliyev, has actually said in the, in the past, you know, we have rockets which are capable of taking out Armenia's nuclear power station. And 
it's very, very worrying. As you will know, Roberta, you know, the previous genocide, the Armenians, 1915, almost, has never been recognized. And Turkey still controls their land. Yes. And the international community being preoccupied with other things and other interests. I'm afraid the British government has a lot of interests, which I think stop it doing the right thing as far as Nagorno-Karabakh is concerned. Uh, there could be, if you like, um, the perfect storm, whereby uh, Armenia could be very vulnerable as well as Nagorno-Karabakh. So we really do hope that your new administration in the States will recognize the significance of re remaining and retaining the right for Armenia to continue as a nation state and the right for Nagorno-Karabakh to self-determination. But at the moment, it's all going very much the wrong way with Azerbaijan increasing with impunity, its hold in Nagorno-Karabakh and continuing to, uh, well, I can't use the right word, but mutilate, torture and kill Armenian civilians with impunity. Is there any basis whatsoever do the Azeri claims that the Armenian soldiers have committed um, war crimes and violations of international law? In war, vicious things happen. And it may well have been that some soldiers did what they shouldn't have done. I just don't know, don't know at all. But certainly independent organizations like Human Rights Watch have laid the blame for that entirely at Azerbaijan's door. And if there were some uh, miscreants on the Armenian side who did what they shouldn't have done, that might have happened, it happens in war. But the systematic killing, the systematic violation of international law and human rights with the use of internationally prescribed weapons and so on, that is entirely reported uh, against Azerbaijan. So the, the mass of evidence which must be uh, called into account, which Azerbaijan must be called to account, relates to Azerbaijan's infringement of international law and Azerbaijan's well-recorded and much more systematic, brutal uh, treatment and killings of prisoners of war. And one of our priorities here is for those of us who are Christians to pray for, but as politicians to act for the right for the International Committee of the Red Cross to have access to the prisoners of war held by Azerbaijan. At the moment, they're not granted that access, but oh. there must or should be very urgently, an exchange of prisoners of war and the protection of the prisoners of war and the civilians now held captive by Azerbaijan. What, what role is Russia playing? Um, Putin has acted as the protector of Orthodox Christianity. Um, he intervened in Syria in that regard um, and in other places. Um, but it sounds, it sounds like Russia's not um, putting as much pressure or support for the Armenians as the Turks are for the Azeris. In the previous war, Russia was very, you know, it, it gave weapons to both sides, but I think it would not have allowed Nagorno-Karabakh entirely to go under, I don't think. Um, the present situation, it's much more uncertain what's happened, and I can't answer that question because Russia has sent peacekeeping forces, that's true, and they are to be welcomed, but I hope they're doing their job. Um, because as I say, at the moment, uh, Azerbaijan is continuing to creep into more areas in Nagorno-Karabakh, and I've been told, and this is only second hand, 
But I've been told that Russia has said to the Armenian forces, don't fight back, don't shoot back. Okay. So it's very difficult to know what Russia's agenda is in the present situation. It did provide peacekeeping forces, but whether they're really providing enough peacekeeping is something that we have to watch this space. And I don't know, literally I can't give an answer, I don't know what Russia's interests are with the countries in the present conflict. You know, the United States, well, there's a large Armenian diaspora um, worldwide, um, but, and part of it is in France, and then there's a large um, Armenian diaspora in the United States and very vocal. Um, and California uh, is one of the places that has a large number of Armenians. California indeed had an Armenian governor in the late 1980s and 19, early 1990s named George Duke Majin who died not too long ago. So I've read some articles uh, published in the United States that I didn't think knew enough history, uh, but, but you know, who were claiming that there was an outsized um, <clears throat> interest in on the side of the Armenians because of the vocal Armenian diaspora. Um, and I, I personally know people whose parents and grandparents um, survived or were killed in the uh, genocide of 1915. I know those stories from people who it's part of their family heritage and that is um, the heritage of the Armenians in California. They are people who are the descendants of survivors of 1915 who came and yes, they're very vocal. How important is that diaspora? And does that voice have any uh, a standing or, or at least any efficacy in this conflict at this time? Well, I passionately hope they do. And I passionately hope they will use their political leverage to help the Armenians of Armenian Nagorno-Karabakh. The most recent report which I received, or a relatively recent report, quotes, in videos posted online on the 22nd of November this year and the 3rd of December, not so long ago, men in uniform, consistent with those of the Azerbaijani military, hold down and decapitate a man using a knife. One then places the severed head on a dead animal. This is how we get our revenge, by cutting off heads, a voice says off camera. It sounds horribly, horribly reminiscent. And I just hope and pray and doing all I can working-wise to make sure the international community does not stand by again and allow another Armenian genocide. It stood by so far and allowed a very large part of a genocide of the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh. And I think we do have to wake up and call people to account and not allow them to get away with impunity. What can the average person who may be listening to this podcast do? We must put as much leverage as we possibly can on our respective governments to make sure that Azerbaijan is called to account for its war crimes and its people are called to account for its war crimes, that Turkey is called to account. Why should Turkey get away with recruiting 4,000 Syrian jihadists and transporting them to Azerbaijan to carry out this war against the Armenians? So I think there is a lot there that needs to be brought out into the open and to say this must not go unrecognized and without being called to account. Because if it is allowed to go unrecognized and with impunity, then that will encourage further aggression and maybe aggression against Armenia itself. Because if you look at the big players like Britain with its interests, its massive oil interest in Azerbaijan, 
I think, I can't remember how many hundred uh, oil firms in Britain have relations with Azerbaijan, as well as British Petroleum, massive. So there are huge interests in Britain with Azerbaijan. Um, and there are also, of course, interests in NATO countries with Turkey being a NATO country. We must not let those interests allow us to stand by and allow the impunity of what's already happened. And with that, the potential encouragement for more aggressions and even uh, the annihilation of the Armenian aspect of Nagorno-Karabakh, historically Armenian for, well, the early churches, they go back to 343 AD. If we've got to stop this, you know, ethnic and religious cleansing, and if we don't, then I think we're going to see very, very disturbing developments. And I think I will be saying, I've, I've raised this in the House of Lords, in the British Parliament, and I have a lot of support from members of the House of Lords. And the all-party parliamentary group in Britain on Armenia has a very strong group, very strong pressure um, on the British government, but interests are interests. And I'll never forget, and I quote this on the floor of the House of Lords, so I'm not breaching uh, security or secrecy, but I won't mention the name, but in the previous war, when I was there when 400 grad a day were coming in on Stepanakert and it was hell on earth and cluster bombs were being used. And I went to a senior person in the foreign office and I showed the pictures of children shredded by cluster bombs. And I said, will the British government make representations to the government of Azerbaijan to stop dropping cluster bombs on civilians? It's a violation of international law. The answer I got, no country has an interest in other countries, only interests. We have oil interest in Azerbaijan, good morning. Now that was in the early 1990s. I hope our foreign office and our foreign policy is not still in that same mode of thinking and policy. Let's close with, and perhaps you'll have a, a final word you want to give, but, but what is the exact status of negotiations and activity on the ground as we speak today, as far as you know? As we speak today, as far as we know, <clears throat> there is a lot of to say undermining of the Minsk group. The Minsk group was the group that was set up that was meant to be providing the um, protocol and the procedures for uh, ceasefire and for a, a negotiated settlement of the problems, inverted commas, of Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan. The latest thing I read is that it looks like the Minsk group may be being under attack. And it's very worrying that so far, um, the British government, whenever I raise questions in the House of Parliament, is very equivocal. You know, it says, well, Armenia is as bad as Azerbaijan, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm worried, and I've said this in Parliament, so I'm not breaching any confidence. I'm very worried about British foreign policy. Canada has a much better record. Canada immediately stopped sales to Azerbaijan of weapons, and I think has made a very strong statement uh, about Azerbaijan's position. I hope the US administration will, because that would be so powerful and so significant. Just in parenthesis, I'm very relieved, having been speaking for the persecuted Christians and others in Nigeria, where thousands have been killed, that very recently your administration, I'm happy to say, has declared Nigeria as a country of particular concern. And the International Criminal Court has agreed to take Nigeria on. Now, please, 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 well, anyone listening in the United States or any other country urge governments uh, to take a similar response to the atrocities 
had been perpetrated on the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia itself. Azerbaijan has also attacked across the border into Armenia, which is against international law. So my plea is please, please, let us not let our governments get away with impunity by acting with impunity towards the atrocities that have been well documented now that have occurred inflicted by Azerbaijan, supported by Turkey, on the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh. And I would just say this, uh, for those who are Christians, please do support the Christians of Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh. When I was in Dadivank, this wonderful thousand-year-old monastery with the 800-year-old stone crosses, exquisite stone crosses, and Father Johannes was desperate because he thought they may be losing all this. I, I witnessed the last wedding that would be performed there before it went under Azerbaijan control. Oh. And that was poignant to the nth degree. Oh. And he's caressing the 800-year-old hatch cars and praying that they will not be destroyed. Uh, but people were just in there. It was thronging with people because it was only one day more that they'd be allowed to be there. And they were going under Azerbaijan control. So it was thronging with people who were weeping, who were taking up soil uh, to take home some of the holy soil from the area of the monastery of Dalyavank, a thousand years old. And it was a place of real weeping and grief. But my good colleague, Reverend David Thomas, we were there together, saw um, a girl standing on her own looking pretty distraught. So he went up to her and talked to her. And her sisters came up and joined, they talked together and then they said, could we take a photograph of you? And my friend David said, well, of course. And they took a photograph and they were weeping and you know, it was just a place of anguish. And they took the photograph and they said, David, were you smiling? We said, well, no, I wasn't. He said, but this is the house of God. We Christians have to be happy in the house of God. You've got to smile. Oh my. <laughs> what, and maybe what a message for Christmas, light in the darkness, a faith that's not extinguished by killings, by atrocities, by Gethsemanes. And their faith is still there. You have to be happy in the house of God. I've had the joy of traveling with you in Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh and uh, the privilege of knowing you. And so I thank you very much. I thank you for your labors of many decades now um, in uh, not only speaking for those who may not have a voice, but also going there so that you bring firsthand um, information, experience, and uh, images um, to the world. And uh, I'm thankful to know you. And uh, I thank you very much for your work now. And I thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. And well, thank uh, you, Roberta, for letting me share really the pain and the passion. It's been agonizing, nothing like as agonizing as it is for them. Right. but agonizing to have been with them. And one of the things that made me really, shall I say, you know, excruciating pain emotionally, so many people come up and just weep and cry on my shoulder and hug me and embrace me and just say, thank God you're here. Yeah. And it's such a privilege to be there on the front lines of, of pain and suffering and maybe genocide. I think it meets all the criteria of genocide. Caroline, thank you so much. And uh, I hope we talk again soon. Thank I you. I look forward to it, Roberta. Bye-bye. 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 This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by Roberta Amundsen 
edited and produced by Peter Freeby. Special thanks to Religion Unplugged managing editor Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is a part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.